If you brought your Bibles with you today, would you open up with me to Isaiah 59? Uh, you can find it if you didn't bring your own Bibles on page 618 of the blue Bibles that are in front of you. And of course, this passage is printed in the bulletins as well. This is our third sermon in a series that we're calling Christmas with Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the birth of Christ, and the words that our Lord gave to the prophet were difficult words. They were words about the sin of the world and words about coming judgment, but they were not only that. Isaiah also saw and heard from the Lord that a holy messianic king was coming as well. And so what we're doing in this series is we're, we're imagining as if we are standing next to Isaiah and saying to him, tell us what you see and tell us what you hear. Uh, in the first sermon when we looked at this, the response, if you will, from Isaiah was, I see something transformational. I see someone, uh, someone coming, something happening that changes everything. That was from Isaiah uh, chapter 11. And then last week when we considered it together, uh, I see something global, something that begins in Israel but is not restricted to Israel. It's in fact a light and a salvation and a covenant that goes out to all the earth and all of the peoples of the earth. We focused on Isaiah 19 last week when we saw that today, something peaceful. Something peaceful is what we see. Uh, I'm going to read for us now the entirety of Isaiah 59. Warning, if you're not familiar uh, with it, it's not going to sound very peaceful. Okay, it's not going to sound very peaceful as we work our way into it. Uh, it gets much more promising and peaceful towards the end of it, but we won't start there. Now, it's a little bit of a longer passage. It's a little bit complex, and so here's a quick way for you to comprehend the passage as I read it for us. The first eight verses that are here are the problem of sin, if you will, described for us. The next eight or so verses down to uh, verse 15 is the problem of sin confessed and then the resolution to the problem of sin comes from verse 16 through to the end of the chapter. If you would prefer, you can think of it uh, as the first eight uh, verses being the charge, the next seven, eight verses as being the plea, and then the end of it being the judgment, the verdict that is rendered as a result of it. The line breaks, whether you're looking at your Bibles or whether you're looking at the bulletin, the line breaks will help cue you into the transitions that take place in the text. So, hear this portion of the living word of our living God. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and, give mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from the one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. 
Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we're like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation. But it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Lord, thank you for your word. As always, we are utterly dependent upon you, even now, at this moment, for the illumination of your spirit so that we understand the things that are set before us today. In our hearts, in our thoughts, in our lives, in our meditations that go on over the next few minutes, Lord, guide, superintend. The evil one would distract us, would send us down rabbit trails, help us to focus upon you and your word. We ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Peace is certainly one of the great words of Christmas, right? Peace on earth is what the angels sang, what they said to the shepherds, and even the very last verse of the song from Zechariah, the prophecy of Zechariah, is that he would guide our feet into the way of peace. A few years ago, my entire uh, Christmas series was on the word peace. And of course, the reality is it's not merely a great Christmas word. It is a great Christmas word, but it's a great word throughout the entirety of the Bible, all of the scriptures. And whether we take this word and consider it in Hebrew or in Greek or in English, I think all of us can appreciate the fact that it has any number of applications to it. There are all sorts of ways in which we use the word peace and all sorts of things that we mean by the word peace. So let me articulate a few of them. Peace for us can mean quietness and stillness. A silent night seems to capture that kind of idea, this idea of peace being there, a calmness and a tranquility. Uh, peace can be a, uh, a settledness of mind or a settledness of spirit, a rest of mind or spirit, a contentedness. Uh, if, if, if not personal fulfillment, at least peace could be a sense of personal satisfaction with the situation in which I find myself, a feeling of wellness, a peaceful, easy feeling. Uh, peace can be understood by us to be the opposite of conflict, right? And you might use it in all sorts of settings. You could talk about a peaceful household, uh, a peaceful marriage relationship, or not. And then you can take that all the way up to nations, right? So the, the nations can be at peace with one another or they can be at war with one another. And of course, biblically speaking, we can talk about uh, peace as wellness or wholeness or harmony. Now, all of these ideas of peace that I just said right here, all of these are wonderful. And on the main, they are biblical as well. We could look at any number of biblical passages that would describe this kind of peace for us. In fact, as a matter of fact, we've already done that, right? When we looked at Isaiah 11 together, we considered a peace, a harmony, a wellness in the creation as a whole. And in that wellness, in that peace, there's no violence that is done in that picture that is given to us in Isaiah 11. We could look, and we already looked at Isaiah 19, and we saw the, the peacefulness that can exist in the Messiah's reign between the peoples of the various nations, right? So, so we looked at nations that were at the time at war, Assyria and Israel and Egypt, and yet we saw described there a fellowship that could take place amongst the people of those nations. And in Isaiah, though we haven't looked at it specifically, he foresees a day of peace when... And we'll recognize these words. Swords become plowshares, spears become pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's in Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah then sees a comprehensive worldwide peace as part of the mountain range reign of the coming Messiah. When the Messiah King comes, he brings us into this reign of peace that exists in the world. Now, as we've said, 
we can also, living from our vantage point, see ways in which this reign of peace is manifest and ways in which it yet remains to be manifest and will await his second advent. But what I want to posit for us today is that the descriptions of peace that I've just articulated for us, that I've just talked about for us, are in fact the fruit, the fruit of a root and shoot of a more fundamental peace. Now, if you haven't been with us, that's language that's taken us back to Isaiah chapter 11. That the things I just described are the fruit that come from a root and a shoot of a different peace, a more foundational peace. And the root of that peace is revealed to us in the passage that I just read for us in Isaiah 59 and in the passage Isaiah 12 with which we open the worship service. So we open the worship service with Isaiah 12 responsively calling us into worship. Both of them reveal the peace. The peace of which we are speaking and I gather you gathered this as we, or as I read it for us, it's not a cheap kind of peace. It's not a peace that pretends, that pretends that everything is just honky-dory and well and everything is fine in the world. It's not a peace that papers over or paints over real problems that exist in the world. It's not a window-dressing kind of peace. Instead, instead, it is a peace that recognizes in full honesty with eyes wide open that there's a problem. It doesn't say, peace, peace. Everybody be at peace without recognizing that there's a significant problem, that there is a barrier, that in fact what we experience in this world is a warfare fundamentally instead of a peace. That is stated as kind of the summary to this opening section. So this opening section, I told you, were the, if you will, the charges that are laid out and described for us. And then verse 8 is the last of those. It's the last verse. And here's the summary. The way of peace they do not know. That's what's shot out there. The way of peace they do not know. There's no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. That's the problem as it is articulated by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. In other places in Isaiah, it's stated also in a phrase that you will recognize. There's no peace for the wicked. There's no rest for the wicked. So as Isaiah looks at this world, he's confronting, confronted immediately with a problem. We can talk about this coming one and about the peace that he will bring, but you have to deal with a problem. And the problem is the wicked and wickedness, right? In verse 3 of our passage, your tongue mutters wickedness, and there's no rest for the wicked. The question quickly becomes, okay, Isaiah, I hear you. You're talking about wickedness and things that are awful, but, but who are the wicked? Who are you talking about who are the wicked in this world? After all, wicked is a pretty serious descriptor. You're going to be called something, being called wicked, and saying what you're doing and what you're saying is wickedness itself. That's pretty severe. Isaiah, who are you talking about? 
Well, are you talking about the people, the nations that you have mentioned in the book? Are you talking about Assyrians and Egyptians, Babylonians, and all of the other nations that you mentioned? I think Isaiah's response would be yes. I'm talking about them. In fact, it's, it's, it's worse because, and we're not going to turn there right now if you're a glutton for this kind of thing, uh, you can on your own later look at, verse, uh, at chapters 24 and 34 of Isaiah and you'll see that it's a wickedness that is not contained only amongst those three nations that I just mentioned, but in fact is comprehensive. It goes out to all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the world are characterized by this sin, this wickedness, and this coming judgment that is being described but it gets worse than that and it gets worse than that in this respect there's one hope that we might hold out to say ah but it doesn't apply here okay it can apply there but it doesn't apply here and of course the one hope that you might be tempted to hold out is Israel right you might want to say that this is the one people who should have known better and not fallen into the pit that is wickedness. But that is not what Isaiah sees. Isaiah sees a fundamental root cause of the want of peace, and it is, in fact, sinful rebellion against God. That is the root. That is the root of all of the warfare, of all of the absence of peace that exists in this world. I don't think anywhere in Scripture states it more plainly than verse 2 of the passage that is in front of us. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you so that he does not hear. And, and if you want the, the confession of that same truth, that comes then in verse 12. Nearly the exact same words now on the lips of those who are guilty. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. That's the fundamental problem. That is the root of all of this. Deep in the heart of humanity lies what has been called the sensus divinitatis. The sensus divinitatis, the sense of divinity. And this sense of divinity that is inside of us is this sense that tells us that someone created us, that there is a God there. And included then in this sense of the divine is not only was I created by this God who is perfect and who is holy, but in fact, this God has standards. He has standards that he has given to the world. Now, we may try to take this sense of the divine and bury it and hide it and squash it and push it down because it gets uncomfortable with the very next sense. The sense is, I don't measure up. I know I don't measure up. I try to do things to make myself feel better. I try to compare myself to other people around me and say that I'm really not as bad as them in a way that's trying to make my conscience be quiet, feel a little bit better about itself. But in the most secret place in my heart, I know that I don't live up to these standards. Now, 
this sense of the divine, I would say, is common, and I think the scriptures say it's common, to humanity as a whole. But in Israel, this isn't just a sense. Okay, in Israel, it's amplified. In Israel, it's spelled out for them. It's revealed to them particularly. First of all, God reveals himself. God reveals himself as the God who is holy, 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 the Holy One of Israel. So God reveals himself as his person. Secondly, to Israel, he not only declares who he is in being their creator, he declares what the norm is. You don't have to, if you will, let your conscience be your guide. Why? Because I'm giving you my law. I'm giving you the Ten Commandments. I'm telling you what the norm is, what the standard is about life itself. And then, because God himself is made manifest, because the law of God is made manifest, then the rebellion itself, the sinfulness itself, is made clear for Israel and for all people to look at it and understand and see what it is. That's what the first half, or the first third at least, of Isaiah 59 is. It is, let me spell it out for you. Let me just clarify for you what the problem is, what the issue is, and what's going on in your heart. You may not want to hear it. You may think it's ugly and uncomfortable, and it is, but I have to spell it out for you. I think, though, at least I thought about this as I was reading through and preparing uh, for this week's sermon, I think, though, there might be a danger for us as contemporary modern Americans when we approach a text like this. We've been told all of our lives, in one form or another, that we are special uh, and that we're slightly above average. Maybe not all the way above average, um, but we're slightly above average than other people who are around in this world. And so I wonder what happens to us when we hear this kind of extreme language. So when you hear, for example, verse 3, that your, finger, that your hands are defiled with blood. What happens to us? Do, do we just kind of dismiss that? And does that just go and, and fly right away from us and, and not have any impact on us at all? Maybe it does. Maybe there's a subtle kind of looking down at my hands, Pastor, you know, I took a shower this morning. Uh, I, I, I used my, my scrub, everything. My hands are kind of clean. I think we would be better served to join with the rest of the readers who would hear these things as being from the Lord and let the language, as graphic as it is, penetrate and do what it is supposed to do. If you look down at your hands and say, my hands are fairly clean, Pastor, because they're not, I haven't killed anybody, there's no blood on them. Hear the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. To those of you who say, no, I haven't done any murder, what does the Lord say? I'm not even going to spell it out. You can look it up yourself. But hear that. That's what the language is supposed to do. It's supposed to get in and convict us. And, and ultimately, what it is supposed to do for us is awaken us. To alert us. The language that is used here is supposed to alarm us. And if you let it slip right off your, your, your mind, your heart, your conscience, it won't do the work that it is, in fact, supposed to do. I don't know if you've got your Bibles open. You don't have to have it open. The very next words of the very next chapter after this, arise and shine, for your light has come. In other words, wake up. 
Wake up. That's what this is trying to do here. It's trying to do the work of alarming us. Because, because then and only then can we understand the reality of verse 8 that there's no peace in us. You don't want to hear that. That on your own, there's no peace in you. I don't want to hear that there's no peace in me. I would rather hear something better than that. But we need to hear it because if we hear it, only then and then can we understand how helpless we are. The, I, I think verse 6 for me is a beautiful description of it. Their webs will not serve as clothing. It's a great image. The web will not serve as clothing. You know why? Because you can see through webs as it turns out. Your webs that you're spinning to try and make yourself look better than these verses describe ourselves as being, they're see-through. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Do you hear kind of the, the, the echoes of Genesis here in your mind? Right? They try to clothe themselves quickly after the sin, after the, the shame and the sin comes into the world. And God's saying explicitly here, that ain't going to work. You can try that all you want. That's not going to be the covering that you need. We have to understand our helplessness. We have to be able to see that it is not within us to be able to turn back this state. And then verse 15 into 16. The Lord sees it. The Lord sees this condition. He sees that there's no justice, that there's no man, and that there's no one to intercede. No justice, no man, no one to intercede. He's looked throughout the earth. He's scanned throughout history. There's no one who can do anything about this problem. No mere mortal man can bring the peace that is actually needed. Lights and garland and decorations poinsettias, cookies, friends, cards, candles, trees, presents, reindeer, they cannot bring the peace that we need. Santa cannot bring the peace that we need. And it pains me to say this. Not even Hallmark can bring the peace that you need. This is what we need. In the language of the Trinity, this is what we need. We need the God of peace to send the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, the one who is anointed with the Holy Spirit. We need the God of peace to send the anointed Prince of Peace to make peace through the covenant of peace and then send to us that same Spirit with which He was anointed so that peace can be worked in our hearts. You got it? We need the God of peace who anoints and sends the Prince of Peace to make peace through the covenant of peace and then sends his spirit into our hearts to bear forth the fruit of peace in our lives. That's what we need. Verse 15. God saw the wickedness on the earth and he was displeased. 
There are people in this world that we don't mind displeasing. God should not be among them. God looked at this world, he surveyed it, and he was displeased. Universally, this is the condition of mankind, and it displeased God. In Isaiah 12, the call to worship, the very first verse put it this way. You were angry with me. You were angry with me. These two truths we have to hold. One is a universal statement. God is not pleased that there's no justice, that there's no man, that there's no one to intercede. That's not pleasing to God. And it's universally true. Isaiah 12 owns it. You were angry with me. It's not just a universal thing that's out there, well, we're all in the same boat kind of thing. You were angry with me. That's how you have to read and hear these things. There is no human solution. There is no clothing that will cover. So God must intervene. God must mediate. God must save. God must redeem. God must don the clothing that is necessary to do the work of the Redeemer if there is going to be any peace in our lives and in this world. To accomplish this, we're given an image. And the image makes up the end there of the passage. God is portrayed as the holy warrior king. He puts on his armor. This is a very similar picture to what we saw, although we didn't talk a lot about it, in Isaiah chapter 11, where this one comes who has the belt of righteousness and faithfulness wrapped around him, who is anointed with the Spirit of God in chapter 11. God, the warrior, enters into the fray, and he enters into the fray full of, verse 17, two words, dangerous words, full of vengeance and zeal. Vengeance and zeal. The warrior comes into this battle. And then the presence of this mighty divine warrior decides the battle. He decides the battle when he comes in, and he decides it in one of two ways. The first way is written in verse 18. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render repayment. That's scary stuff. That's scary stuff when the mighty warrior comes to repay wrath to his adversaries, to his enemies. That's one way. Or, verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Two sides to it. The mighty warrior comes and slays or he comes as the redeemer. Verse 19, it seems to me, kind of sets forth the hinge point of this, as it talks about fear, and a fear that spreads from west to east, east to west, and a fear that comes quickly like a rushing stream into the midst of it, when you see this one who has come, don and decked in these clothes, this armor, when he comes in the midst of it. And the two responses to it are predictable, to, to, quote, to summarize verse 18. Or, and other parts of Scripture, you've got two possibilities. 
Verse 18 is fight or flight. You're going to fight against the mighty warrior, the divine warrior who comes in, or flee away from him? Or, or, when this fear comes to you, when you see this predicament, do you instead turn to the very one who comes and say, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner? Are you drawn to the one who has come in the name of the Lord? You come on bended knee and a redemption begins. A redeemer comes to Zion. It begins in Israel. And as we saw last week, it will spread to the whole world. A peace has been purchased. So how does this redeemer do this? How does this redeemer gain this peace? Well, we have to go back a few chapters. Uh, you don't have to turn there. It's on the front of your bulletin. Look at the front of your bulletin. How does the redeemer get this peace? Isaiah 53 but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. The Redeemer. The Redeemer secures peace. Not merely by slaying the wicked. But by allowing himself to be slain by the wicked for the sake of the wicked. Not for the sake of the good guys. The, 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 the mighty divine warrior doesn't walk in and say, all right, all you good people on my side and all you bad people over there, right? Because who would be on his side? No justice, no man, no one. No one ends up on his side if that's the way he comes in. Instead, he comes in and says, for the wicked, for the enemies, I lay down my life. I take up the sentence. In order to purchase the peace that my people need, I have to take the place. I have to take the judgment of the wickedness upon me for there to be peace. He has to be the one with whom God becomes angry so that God's anger is turned away from you. So that you can say, you were angry with me, but your anger turned away and you comfort me. How did that happen? It happened because somebody came in the middle. Somebody came between you and God. It's not because God thought, well, he's not as bad as I thought he was. It's because somebody came in and absorbed the anger on your behalf. The Redeemer. The Redeemer who came to Israel is the one who came and stood in between that wrath of God. You bore it on your behalf so that the anger's turned away. And God comforts you with the good news. Verse 21 gives us more detail of this. Look at it closely with me for just a moment. Verse 21. What does it say? And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. Now this is a dense verse. I'll just I'm try and unpack it as clearly as I can. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. Let's clarify. This then is the Lord speaking, right? It's Yahweh who is speaking. Me is Yahweh. And he's speaking about them. 
them in this case is the people of Israel. In particular, verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So this is being spoken to those who will turn from this transgression. That's the them who is in this. What then is this covenant? This is my covenant. What is this covenant? Look at the front of your bulletin again. The second of the two verses that's on the front. This is again just a few chapters before this. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. What is the covenant? The covenant is this covenant of peace. It is the seal, the sign, the bond of the love of God and of the compassion of God that is brought forth to the people of God in this world. And so it says here, it is my, it is Yahweh's, it's, it's the Lord's covenant of peace for the people, with them, those who turn. Here's the next question. Who's being addressed here? Who's the Lord talking to? He's, he's not talking to them. They're, them is in the third person. Me is God. Who's he talking to? The answer, of course, is the Redeemer. He's talking to the Redeemer right here, where it says, my spirit that is upon you. My spirit that is upon you. That's, that's Messiah language. That's what Christ means. This is, this is Christ language. This is the language that we see picked up all over Isaiah and then in the New Testament as well. Let me just... I'll, I'll give you two chapters after this. Isaiah chapter 61 starts off with words that you'll recognize. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach, to proclaim good news. That's, of course, what Jesus quotes when he opens the scroll and he reads from the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. In other words, I'm the anointed one. Or, if we flip back to Isaiah chapter 11... The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. So when the Lord speaks to, for those of you who know your mind, when the Lord speaks to my Lord and says this, my Spirit that is upon you, he's now turned to the mediator. He's turned to the Son. My Spirit that is upon you, O bringer of the covenant of peace. My word is in your mouth and in the mouth of your children and of your children's children forever. You, O Prince of Peace, Messiah, Redeemer, Covenant Mediator, you are going to have a lot of children. How many children did Jesus have? Zero or millions? What's your answer? Zero or millions? This is the, this is the vision of Isaiah. The Redeemer comes, and when the Redeemer comes, the offspring of the Redeemer, well, that's sands of the seashore language, who are the offspring of this Redeemer who will come. It's no wonder, then, that the angels sing out at his birth, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Peace, why? Because the one who was conceived by the Spirit, who will be anointed by the Spirit of God at his baptism, that one has come into the world. And the one who has come into the world, conceived by the Holy Spirit, is God himself. Emmanuel will come in the flesh, God with us, 
and he's born of a virgin. Which is to say, he's outside of us so that he can deliver us, and he's one of us. He's one of us. He's a redeemer. He's the, the, the kinsman redeemer. He's the nearest relative. He's the one who will take our dead, buried names and raise them up. Granting offspring to we who had no offspring and who ourselves were outside of the covenant until he brought us in. Peace with God is the core of all peace. It's not a cheap peace. It's not fuzzy. It's not sentimental. It isn't even gentle. He had to be crucified. He had to be pierced to cut this covenant, to make this covenant, to secure this eternal covenant of peace with his people. Now, one last thing. The angel, their song doesn't end with the word peace. It ends with this. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. In Isaiah 59, the Lord is displeased, universally displeased with humanity. We can either face the anger and wrath of God on our own, in which case there is no peace and no pleasing God. Or we can turn in faith to the beautiful Savior, to the Redeemer, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and in Him know peace and the pleasure of God. That's why Isaiah can say, in verse four, I'm sorry, in chapter 40, Isaiah can say, comfort, speak these words of comfort to the people of Israel. Cry unto them, what? Their warfare is ended. How's the warfare ended? The iniquity is pardoned. How'd the iniquity get pardoned? Because the Prince of Peace came. The Prince of Peace came, stood in the gap there made intercession for his people. The fruit of peace will come. And it will come in our lives, and it will come finally when Jesus returns. Now is the day. Now is the day to believe in the root of peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, there's not a person in this room who deserves to be here. We deserve anger, and anger only. And yet we've received mercy. Oh, Lord, thank you. And Lord, if there are those who are here today who do not know that transformation from death unto life, may this be the day where they reach out to you in faith and believe in the root, in the shoot, of Jesse, who came into the world, in whose name we pray. Amen.